This morning, once again in Matthew, looking today at chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, the birth of Jesus Christ, kings and Chaldeans. Now, if you've been with us over the last several weeks, we have been considering out of the gospel of Matthew, the lineage of Jesus Christ according to the flesh. In chapter 1 and verse 17... Matthew records, so that all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. It took place in this way, not in another way but in a particular way. As the Lord had declared through his prophet Isaiah in chapter 42 and verses 6 through 9, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness and I will take you by the hand and keep you and I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness I am the Lord, and that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. He was telling us in his word. He is telling us in this genealogy. A genealogy that begins with Abraham. Not because other men had no knowledge of or had not received the promise, men like Adam and Noah and Shem, but instead because Abraham was the first that God gave understanding to. Understanding by which the promise was ordained to grow. And so with Abraham it began in the knowledge of men. He was the first to see the promise in a definitive way. But he would not be the last. For the birth of Jesus Christ happened in this way. In Mount Zion, let me tell you, it is precious to me. I love it. I love the fact that it happened in this way. As messy, (laughs) uncomfortable, (laughs) and difficult as it may be, I love the fact that it happened in this way. This is the way my Savior came. This is the way the Father begot him among men. This is the way the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It happened in this way. Canaanite prostitutes, Moabite widows, once worshipers of demons, now the Ibiru, the Hebrew, the crossed over ones. Incest and adultery, not because of men, but in spite of men. For our God cannot be stopped. 
As the psalmist says in 115 and verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. You just can't throw a wrench into what he does. And so finally today, after Canaanites and Moabites and incest and adultery, we finally arrive at the king. And so... In Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. I love the way that Matthew phrases it. Jesse, not the father of King David, though that would have worked just fine. Jesse, the father of David, the king. I'm not sure why I like it as much as I do. I think, I think... I'm going to step out on a little bit of an exegetical limb here, if you will allow me. I think the reason I like it as much as I do is because, and if I'm wrong, you can forgive me. I won't pound the pulpit on this one. I think it indicates the difference between the man and the ordained call. And so he's not King David because David is worthy to be the king. He is David who is the king because the Lord said so. Jesse, the father of David, the king. Boy, it was a long time coming. Go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel. We're going to be in the Old Testament just almost exclusively this morning. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see the, 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 the calling, the anointing of David. On Wednesday nights, we've been in the wild, wild west. <laughs> Justice in the wild, wild west as we look through the book of Judges and and the crazy thing is this, is, and I think a lot of us probably, one of the things that I hope we can accomplish is, as we move through the genealogy here is to get some, some reference for the time frame in which these events were unfolding. We read the book of Judges, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, 15 pages long, something like that. Um, and, and then we consider the kings of Israel through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and all the history that is there. And, and there is much written about them. The reality is, is the period of the judges was almost as long as the period of the kings. 
We're talking just a couple of decades of difference. And so the period of the judges is a lot larger than most people give it credit for. The history is, is, is presented in a much more overarching fashion, less detail, more summary in its nature. And so we think of it that way, but the reality is it was almost as long as the kingdom. And so after all of this time, coming out of Egypt and wandering in the wilderness, and then all of this time in the wild, wild west, conquering the frontier and pressing westward into the land, finally, finally, the day of the king comes king that would be after God's own heart, a king that would testify to the promise of the king that was to come. And in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Samuel was hopeful in what Saul could have been, but the Lord had rejected him from the throne. And it took Samuel a while to calibrate his will to God's will. But it was time to get calibrated. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. I think I like that statement better than I like David the king. (laughs) I have provided for myself. It's not that I have searched and found one here that is worthy to do the calling that I, I have before him, but I have produced this. I have provided for myself in his midst that which I require. And Samuel said, how can I go if Saul hears it? He will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? What a time it is in the kingdom where men tremble because of the coming of the man of God. And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Note that the man of God functioning in the fullness of faith and the certainty of what the Lord has called him to do is still just a man. For he looks upon the eldest and says, man, this must be him. 
This must be him. We're going to see something similar later with the prophet Nathan. Men, ladies, boys, girls, it is critical that the people of God be honest in the moment. And so here you have a man who is the man of God coming in the fear of the Lord to do something that is very dangerous to his own skin. If Saul knows what he's doing, he's going to kill him. And he looks at what the Lord has laid before him and he makes an assessment based off what's in front of him. And it's a good assessment. Right up until the moment that the Lord tells him different. And when the Lord shows you the truth, don't hang on in pride. Be thankful for the enlightenment. Because let me tell you, you don't want Iliab. You want the boy. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came and met him trembling, saying, Do you come peacefully? And he said, I do come peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in, and he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise and anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Here he is. The one I have provided for myself. Because this may have started with Abraham, but it's not about Abraham. The Lord is telling his people it's about me. And so it doesn't matter if it's Canaanites or Moabites or incest or adultery or whatever the case may be. It doesn't matter if it's the youngest son instead of the oldest. This is what I have provided for myself. The birth of Jesus Christ will happen in this way. And so go get him. 
out from the midst of the sheep, smelling like the field, young, immature, not yet fit for war. This is the one that I have provided. But God was not satisfied to choose him. He was not satisfied only to anoint him. The Lord would promise to him. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 6 or 7, you guys are very familiar with this passage. David is setting in his palace now years later. After all of the hardships of being on the run from Saul, fearful for his life on a daily basis, living in caves and cracks in the rock, drooling on his own beard, drinking water out of muddy puddles. When it looked like that the promise of God was far from him and the anointing would come to nothing, his faith never wavered. And the Lord provided as he said he would. For he sits in the heavens and he does all that pleases him. And now David's enemies have been vanquished. And he sits upon a throne in a palace of cedar and he looks around and he says, My place is nicer than the place where the Ark of the Covenant sits and that's problematic for me. And so he comes to Nathan once again, the man of God, and he says, it is in my heart to build a temple for the, for the ark to set in. And Nathan says, with a clear conscience, do all that is in your heart. It is good that you want to do this. And then the word of the Lord comes to Nathan. And he tells him that he has a different plan. And so in verse 1 of chapter 7, it says, Now when the king lived in the house, in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day that I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture. took you from the pasture. The Southern Baptists have a heated debate going on right now about what the word pastor means. If you look to the Greek in the New Testament, from a grammatical sense, it means the same thing that is being described right here. It literally means one of the field That's why they call it pastor is because you come from the pasture. (laughs) Took you from the field. 
from the pasture, from the midst of the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. And moreover, he's not just chosen. He's not just anointed. He has promised something. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, Man, you are seeing this declaration come to fruition in Matthew chapter 1. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Done and done. From Abraham to David, the king. The king God provided for himself. That he chose for himself. That he anointed for himself. And that he promised to give himself to. Finally. After all of this time, can you imagine being Abraham on the plain overlooking Sodom and having the Lord tell you, this is my promise to you, but you'll never live to see it. As a matter of fact, we're just getting started. You see, you're going to die and be gathered to your fathers. Your son's going to die and be gathered to his fathers. Your grandson, in his old age, in the midst of famine, is going to end up in Egypt. And it's going to be a sweet deal for a while. But that's really just the beginning on the lease because they're going to be there for 400 years. And then they're going to wander around in the wilderness for another four decades. Because the iniquity of the Canaanites is not yet complete. And then they're going to come into the land and they're going to spend more time, almost as much time in the frontier as they do in the kingdom. But it's okay. Because the birth of Jesus Christ happened in this way. Man, you finally get to the king. I mean, we, we generally speaking date Abraham at about 2000 BC. We date David between right at about 1050. It's been a thousand years. A thousand years. And you finally get to the king. And you're like, okay, here he is, man. He's, he's, he's the shepherd. He's the poet. 
He's the warrior. Slayer of giants. Subduer of Philistines. The king to which the promise has come where one will sit on his throne forever. And you think, we finally arrived. We finally got there. Man, here it comes. Here it comes. And so begins the decline of the kings of Judah. Have you ever labored and labored and labored and labored to get somewhere and think to yourself, we finally arrived? And go, just to find out you're not even close. <laughs> Here it is. The son of Jesse. And the decline of the kings of Israel. And so in 1 Kings chapter 11, Jesse begot David the king, and David through the wife of Uriah begot Solomon. And King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. Not a racist. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives. That's ripe for commentary, but... He had 700 wives. Who were princes, princesses. 300 concubines... His wives turned away his heart, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. I hope that it is hard for you to listen to this passage as it is for me to read it. There was a time... that I put much value in being, if not the smartest, at least one of the smartest men in the room. 
And the reality is, is what Solomon proves to us is that human intelligence will get you nothing but destruction. The wisest man ever to be born of an earthly father. And he ran headlong into destruction. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. And when Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountains east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. And therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. And yet... For the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. I promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to 400 years of captivity and 40 years in the wilderness and hundreds of years, centuries in the period of the judges. And now here is David. And I've provided a king for myself. I've chosen him from the house of Jesse and brought forth Solomon out of the midst of murder and and, and, and adultery and, and he is turned from me and yet because I have chosen I will keep this I will keep it to myself and the kingdom splits and you guys know the story Judah remains under the control of the house of David and the rest of the tribes split to the north. And the next thing you have is Jeroboam I, as we looked at for months on end in Amos, standing in Dan and in Bethel going, This, O Israel, pointing to these two golden calves, is thy Elohim who led you forth out of Egypt. And the clock ticks. And the Lord sends his prophets, men like Amos, to declare to them that they should repent unless the wrath of God comes. And not only do they not repent, but they double down on their iniquity. And so in 2 Kings in chapter 17 and verses 6 through 18, the fall of the northern kingdom is recorded. goes like this in the ninth year of Hoshea the king of Assyria captured Samaria 
And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the harbor, the river of Gozan, and in the city of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the custom of the kings that the kings of Israel practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their gods things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and a shirim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings in all of the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. They did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. They served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. And yet, talk about mercy, the opportunity of grace. And yet, the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways, keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. They followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. They abandoned the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves And they made Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. And so, men like Amos, the prophet from Tekoa, came and he he pleaded with them. He rebuked them on behalf of the Lord, but they would not listen. And Sennacherib came like an overwhelming flood. Barely men. Driven like slaves at the tip of a demon's whip. Scripture says they came like a shadow. Like blackness over the land. And like a horde of locusts, everything was consumed before them. What they could not devour, what they could not destroy, they burned. So that to this day, 
so utter was their destruction that to this day there are men and women and boys and girls that are walking around on the face of this planet that have no idea that their lineage contains the blood of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They wiped them from the face of history. And they came all the way to Jerusalem's gate. All the way to the front door. For in the same period of time when men like Amos were proclaiming to the kingdom of the north what was going to come because of their idolatry, in that same period of time when cities in the north were falling like dominoes, the Lord had commissioned other men to speak to the kings in the south. And it was in this day that Isaiah would be speaking to Hezekiah. Right when the horde was at the gates. In 2 Kings chapter 18, in verse 1, it says, In the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah began to reign and he was 25 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. And he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. You think that made Hezekiah a popular guy? (laughs) I'm guessing probably not. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. So that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. And in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, he took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which is the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. Boy, that's a a pretty brief way to say millions died. Samaria was taken. The king of Assyria carried away the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Halah and on the harbor and the river Gozan and in the cities of the Medes because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God but transgressed his covenant. Even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they neither listened nor obeyed. 
And in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Now, if, you, if you've got a map in the back of your Bible and you look at, at, at a map from this period, then what you will notice is Jerusalem is not centrally located. It is in the far south of Israel. The Assyrians are coming from the north, conquering as they go. And they take all of the northern kingdom of Assyria and they conquer every single walled city in Judah except for Jerusalem itself. It's the last one they get to. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver. A talent's about 75 pounds. About 75 pounds. Right at $1,400 an ounce. 300 talents of silver. Or sorry, that would be gold. Silver selling for quite a bit less than that. 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord, in the treasuries of the king's house. And at that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it all to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan and the Rabsaris and the Rabashakah with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shibna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And so here it is. You get to David, the king. The promise is made. Surely it must be at hand. Only to see the decline of the kings, the splitting of the kingdom, the destruction of the north, and now this demonic horde sets outside the gate of Jerusalem itself, and they are going to speak in the hearing of the people blasphemous things they're going to accuse Hezekiah of tearing down the things of the God of Israel when in actuality what he was tearing down was the things of demons oh man don't get me going Be careful with what history has labeled. They looked at Hezekiah and they said, it is him that has tore down the high places of your God. When in reality, what he had tore down was the high places of everything that stood against their God. The reality is, is while the king's heart is faithful, it did not bend the heart of the people. 
The story would end differently if it had. And they speak in the language of Judah. And the officers of the king's court beseech the envoys that have been sent by the Assyrians to speak in Aramaic instead, for they understand it and the people don't. And their response to them is, why in the world would we not speak in such a way that the people on the wall can hear, for it is them who will eat their own dung and drink their own urine because of what we're going to do to you if you don't open these doors. And in the, in the face of overwhelming force, over, guys, they're done. There are hundreds of thousands of Assyrians outside the gate. They are done. All of the rest of the kingdom has fallen. There is no one to come to their aid. There is no one to break the siege. They will set inside those walls and starve to death. And in the midst of overwhelming odds, when there is no way that you can possibly win, the king on the throne in Jerusalem is faithful. He's faithful. Goes like this in chapter 19. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, that being what they were being threatened with, that you'll eat your own dung and drink your own urine, and your God is not able to save you, Look at all the rest of the cities of the land. Didn't they have the same God as you? He didn't save them. He's not going to save you. Time to get practical. Time to cut a deal. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he went into the house of the Lord. And he said to Eliakim, who was over his household, and to Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabbishakeh, whom the master, whom his master, the king of Assyria, sent to mock the living God. And will rebuke the words that the Lord our God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. And when the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. I will put a spirit in him. The heart of the king 
is turned like water in the hand of the Lord. If you're his, he put a spirit in you. Aren't you glad it wasn't this one? He put a spirit in you. But not a spirit of rumor and not a spirit of fear. But a spirit of truth and of faith and of life. He said, don't you worry about him. I'm going to make him a madman. And it can be truly said that I have destroyed him and that he will destroy himself. The Rabbishakah returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. And now the king heard concerning Terhaka, the king of Cush, behold, he has set out to fight against you. And so he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, the king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction, and you shall be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the people of Eden who were in Telsar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvim, the king of Hena, or the king of Evah? Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open our eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands. Notice that Hezekiah is not in denial and yet he is also not fleeing to fleshly means. He's not an idiot. He knows what has happened. The things this guy has said are largely true. They have done it. He also knows in whom he believes. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. And so now, O Lord our God, save us please from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. And then Isaiah, the son of Amos, 
sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, I have heard, and this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights against the Holy One of Israel? After all, this is still the king that God has provided for himself. By your messengers you have mocked the Lord and you have said, With many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon. I felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypress. I entered its farthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and I dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field, and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blight before it's grown. But I know you're sitting down, And you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back by the way which you came. The Lord says, all right, big boy. Have you laid waste to Lebanon? Have you cut down your enemies before you? You have, and it's all because of me. And now I'm done. And you will fall. And this shall be a sign for you. This year eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs of the same. Then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. And the zeal of the Lord will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. And then Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishroth, his god, Adremelech and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat in Esrahadon, his son, reigned in his place. 
How would you have liked to work for city sanitation in the days immediately following that? Finally, the king. The decline of the kings. But guys like Hezekiah and later Josiah, whose hearts were about the business of the Lord and for the Lord the way that David's had been. The turning back of an indefeatable army before their gates. And yet, in chapter 20 in those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. Don't put your faith in men. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and shall not recover. And then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. And on the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, Bring a cake of figs and let them take and lay it on the boil that he may recover. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me? And that I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day. And Isaiah said, this shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do the thing that he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps or go back ten steps? You understand what's going on here. They're in the king's room in the tower. They're looking down on the courtyard and the steps going down to the courtyard. And as the sun progresses East to west through its day, the shadow is growing longer. And so he asked him, he says, you want it to go forward or do you want it to go backward? And Hezekiah answered, it's an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen ten steps because it does so every single day. (laughs) Rather, let the shadow go back ten steps. And Isaiah the prophet called to the Lord and he brought the shadow back ten steps by which it had gone down on the steps of Ahaz. I don't want to spend much time this morning talking about the nature of this miracle, Um, but I think we should take just a moment to pause and appreciate the magnitude of it. It, it um, It is not so amazing. Um that the Lord would cause the earth to spin the opposite direction. <laughs> um, and, and people have speculated, um, you know, that 
the size of these steps and how long that would have took. Was it five hours? Was it whatever? Ten, whatever. The, the, the point is, the thing that's amazing to me is not that the Lord would cause the earth to spin in the opposite direction for however long it took for the shadow to go back ten steps. What's amazing is that there was any earth left after you reversed it. It's spinning at 1,700 miles an hour. You, that's, that's the equivalent of going down... Well, it's, it's way more than that. Uh, imagine, if you would, going down the interstate in your truck at 75 miles an hour and throwing it into reverse. God is faithful to His people. And at that time... Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, who, guys, at this point in time, is like Podunk Hickville. At this point in time, compared to what's going on with Assyria, compared to what's going on with Egypt, I mean, this is like evening shade. It's like being from Sugar Ditch, if you've seen the movie. He sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah welcomed them and showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. And then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? Where did they come From where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, They've seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Guys, that that reads nicer than it is. What father wants to hear that not only are they going to come and take all your stuff, but they're going to castrate your boys and make them slaves. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, now check this out. Don't make men your heroes. Because Hezekiah is about as good as they come. And after receiving this news, Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought, why not? If there will be peace and security in my days, why not? As long as it's easy for me. This is exactly what our nation is doing every time that we hit print. And start churning out cash. 
This is what we're doing every time we raise the debt ceiling. I won't be around to see it. But the reality is, is our children will. And so, though it's a couple of generations later, Jerusalem will fall in the same manner that northern Israel fell. In chapter 24, in verse 18, Zedekiah, who was the king at the time, was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, no longer sugar ditch. No longer a backwater. He came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it, and they built siege works all around it so that the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. And then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden, and the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. And then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzardan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude. Nebu Zardan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And you look at it and you go, man, what's the point? Where's the hope? In this, 
It's just up and down and up and down. And the thing is, is it, it seems like every time it goes up, it never goes quite as high up as it did before. And then when it goes down, it goes down a lot further than it did before. Where is the hope in these things? If the point of Abraham was to get us to a king on his throne... There was a testimony of that which is to come, but the throne fails. Men are flawed. They're rebellious and they're wicked and they turn their face from all that is good and it ends in their destruction because God is righteous and God is holy. And a righteous God will not overlook sin. What is the point? What's the point in David if he's just going to end up in Babylon? Where's the promise in this? The promise is sitting beside the river in Babylon. That's where it is. In Daniel chapter 2, we're done. The king sent the captain of his guard and he burned the house of the Lord. He burned the king's palace. He burned all the great houses of Jerusalem. And he took everything but the dregs into captivity in Babylon. Seventy years, according to the prophet Jeremiah, they would sit. And they wept there beside the river when they remembered Zion. the most evil man on the face of the planet had a dream. It vexed him. He didn't know what it meant, but he knew it was significant. So significant, in fact, that he did not trust his own wise men, sorcerers, and soothsayers to tell him the truth. Have you ever had a a, a truly spiritual dream. I mean, the kind where you can say, the Lord sent me a dream. Guys, I've just had a couple. Let me tell you something. Me and Freeman were talking about this the other day. We were laughing about it. If someone ever comes up to you and says, you know, I think I may have had a spiritual dream, then you didn't. You didn't. If you think you might have, then you didn't. Man, those things are like a hammer. As a matter of fact, when you see Daniel have these visions, it puts him sick in bed for weeks at a time. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He doesn't know what it means, but he knows it's important. It's so important. He doesn't trust his own guys. And so how do you deal with this? I mean, when you're a snake in a pit full of snakes... How do you trust the other snakes? And so what he tells them is this. He says, boys, I've had a dream, and you're going to interpret it for me. 
And if you don't, I'm going to kill all of you. Every one of you. I'll kill every wise man in every wise man in all of Babylon. I'm going to kill you all if you can't interpret the dream. And they go, well, okay, whew, heavy stuff. Tell us what the dream is. He goes, oh, no, no. Stakes are way too high for that. You tell me what the dream was. Then I'll know your interpretation is true. And if you can't, then you're full of it. And you're all going to die. Well, you can imagine this caused the average blood pressure of the wise men in Babylon to jump quite a bit over the course of the next couple of days. Daniel goes home and much like Hezekiah, he's laying in bed and he's beseeching the Lord to answer his call. So far removed from Abraham. The oaks of Mamre seem like they're a million miles away. I mean, who wouldn't prefer the cave of Adullam over this? And in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 25, Arioch, the king's servant, brought Daniel in before the king in haste, and he said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. And the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the later days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. And this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you. Its appearance was frightening. The head of its image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut. A stone was cut by no human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold and all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, of whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. 
And another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partially of potter's clay and partially of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partially iron and partially clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And then in the days of those kings, you want to know where the hope is in all of this? In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron and the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain. Its interpretation is sure. The head of gold the chest of silver, the thighs of bronze, and the legs of iron mixed with clay, the kingdoms that shall rise out of the earth, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, Rome 2.0. And all of these will be scattered like chaff upon the wind. When God himself cuts by no human hand a stone from the mountain that shall shatter them and rise to fill the whole earth. You want to know where the hope is in the 14 generations from David the king to the deportation to Babylon? The hope the promise is with the people of God in Babylon just as much as it was with David when he was called in from tending the sheep. Peter would say it this way. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And I pray that you are. From Abraham to David, 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. Next week, the return. <laughs>